the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. My name is Paul Chapman and I'm a Senior Conservation Consultant with SEC Consulting. In this podcast, I'll be discussing the sometimes contentious issue of predator control for the conservation of wildlife. I've been speaking about conservation issues at meetings with farmers and other land managers for over 20 years, and concerns about the impacts of predators on wildlife populations are almost always raised. At the same time, my discussions with colleagues in the conservation sector generally focus more on habitat management and creation. Historically, there have been very high levels of predator control in this country, with many predatory species themselves becoming species of conservation concern. And despite a welcome recovery of many species, some remain in a perilous position. This perhaps explains the ambivalence that some conservationists feel about predator control, in contrast to deer control, for example. In practice, though, while the creation and management of good quality habitat is the foundation of successful species conservation work, there's no doubt that there's a strong body of scientific evidence that predation can be a significant factor in the decline of some species of conservation concern, particularly ground nesting birds such as waders and capercaillie black grouse. The recovery of some of these species may not always be possible by habitat management alone, and some level of predator control or management may be necessary, particularly when populations have reached very low levels. To discuss these issues further, I'm joined by Alistair McGugan, who works on wildlife management policy at Scotland's nature conservation agency, NatureScot. Alistair, what do you see as the main issues in terms of predation, the, the main predators that land managers might be concerned about in terms of species of conservation concern? Yeah, so I think um, you're quite right there about talking about, you know, the, the difference of opinions and, and the different levels of evidences that there are with regards to teasing out cause and effect of predation. And I think the bit of work that we did well, maybe five, six, seven years ago on understanding predation highlighted that, yes, predation has an impact, particularly in ground nesting birds. But it's not just about predation. It's also about habitat management. Um, and being and, and, and habitat changes and land use changes, but trying to tease out which one is the one that's causing the main driver is really really difficult. And there's very few um, bits of evidence, bits of research, uh, which manages to do that. But what understanding predation did show was that the combination of good land management, targeted land management, along with good targeted predator control, did make a difference. Uh, to species like curlew, to ewit, to, to lapwings. So I think that 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 we're quite clear about that, that the combination of good management and predator control and thinking about why and when and how we're putting that predator control in, depending on what species it is that we're looking for. And, and my main interest is waders, it's got to be said. So it's thinking about even within the wader family, and um, the difference of where they're, they're, they're nesting, the different pressures of some of the different um, predators that are around. And the main predators are really the generalist predators. So they're the foxes, the corvids, um, the stoats, the weasels, those, and in, and in some places, rats. And so those are the main um, predators that we're thinking about. But we need to do it 
in that sort of wider round of thinking about what is it that we're needing to do for, for the species that we're targeting. And I think sometimes we, we get lost in some of those discussions about the predator itself rather than actually turning on his head and saying, well, we're really interested here on, on you know, so if it's curlew, well, it's curlew that we're interested in. So what is actually going on with curlew and what are the combination of things that we can do um, to help curlew? And that then will dictate the type of predator control um, that we should be putting in play, but also hopefully think about some of the habitat management stuff that we can be doing as well. So if a farmer was interested in um, managing their land for, for, say, wading birds, and they were concerned about predation, what would be the, the, the first steps they should take in, in planning to, to maybe do something about that? For waders, etc., you know, for curlew, then we're, we're, we're probably thinking about breeding. And, and the work has shown that the main issue with curlew a lot of the time it is actually in its productivity. In other words, the number of chicks that are able to get away. Um, and so therefore, predation has an impact there on, on curlew. But, but whether that's um, stoats, whether that's crows, whether that's foxes, actually starts becoming quite difficult to disentangle. So what we, we should be really thinking about there is a more, I'm not saying we need a, a, an intensive predator management plan. That's not what I'm getting at. But we need to be thinking a little bit more about, right, well, well what are the predators? How are we seeing those predators there? We can be setting up things like, like um, cameras to see what predators are moving in and out of the key breeding areas. There is some work going on, which is actually putting uh, nest cameras in. So we're, we're getting an, a, a real clear view of, of the range of predators that are coming in. But for, 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 you know, for a general land manager, it is more about a better understanding of the range of predators that are in there, the relative abundance of, of those predators, and then thinking through um, the type of predator plan, predator management plan that we'd be thinking of putting in play, and just thinking through, well, if it's, a, if it's um, predatorial corvids, then maybe then it's a larson trap. And, and when do I use a larson trap? Well, larson traps are really only really that use for us from that spring to summertime. So it's thinking through that, that type of approach. So you mentioned larson traps, which are the, the, the small cage traps for, for trapping individual um, uh, COVID crows. What range of methods is available for um, land managers to control predators for, for conservation purposes? So the, the main methods are, well, well they, there's, a, there's a range of methods, again, depending on, on the species that we're into. Uh, you know, on some of reserves, there's actually a physical barrier that's put up during the breeding season. For example, for terns, there's electric fencing is put up to try to act as that physical barrier for foxes coming through. For general land managers, that's obviously not going to be that practical unless there is, you know, a really concentrated area of, of wader breeding. But for most of most of them, it's going to be um, the use of larson traps, the use of cage traps, the use of spring traps. Um, as well as um, lamping, um, you know, the use of a lamp at night to, to shoot foxes in particular. Um, so Larson traps are used for corvids. They're controlled under general license. Um, and they're designed to be targeting territorial birds. So they're more used for a mixed type of landscape. They're not so useful in the, in the open range, you know, out on moorland, for example. 
Um, and again, they're, they're, they're more effective during that um, spring, summertime when, when we've got those territorial birds that are getting to know the area and are therefore got a higher degree of intelligence, if you like, as to, as to where um, the waders are breeding and, and when and how. So the impact of territorial birds can be, can be, quite, can be quite significant. The other one in terms of cage traps. Well, cage traps are probably more useful in a more open countryside, and they're probably being used more for where you've got um, larger flocks, particularly of, of, of specifically of corvids, larger flocks um, around, and they're feeding flocks. And again, you probably find them more um, efficient um, in that sort of late winter time when you're beginning to get some of those flocks coming together and, and looking at feeding through an area. And then for uh, stoats and weasels, predominantly what you've got there are um, cage traps, and that's either live cage traps or it's spring traps. Um, and again, they're covered by legislation. Um, so the, the thing that we have to see there is that, well, what is the species we're trying to, what predator is it that we're trying to control? And then thinking through what is the most appropriate of those techniques to use at what particular time of the year. And so it's 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 about targeting that predator control and also looking to see, well, if I'm doing it just on my property, is is that going to be effective enough? Can I, should I be looking beyond that and seeing if there's a cluster of properties that can join together or, or at least be putting some degree of targeted predator control in play? Because, you know, stoats on one hunting trip could be going as far as two kilometres. So we need to be thinking about this, not just from an individual property point of view, but from that that's slightly wider, not necessarily a whole landscape, but certainly clusters of properties. I'm sure a, a lot of farms, a lot of farmers do um, a certain amount of what you might call occasional predator control, maybe going out lamping for foxes every now and again or whatever. But what you seem to be suggesting is that it maybe needs a much more clearly thought out and targeted approach. So... What we are clear about is just going out the odd time and shooting an odd fox or setting an odd trap here and there is is not going to do any good at all. Um, and what needs to be done there is, is that thinking about, well, OK, I'm going to do this particular type of predator control at this time. So it may be that I'm, you know, that for a lot of the, the, the late spring, early autumn, there's not much predator control going on. It may be that then, depending on where you are, that actually I'm going to target my predator control in the late winter because I've got these flocks of cor cor corvids around the place. And then I'm going to then move into targeting by the use of uh, larsen traps in, in the spring and, and into summer, into late summer if we possibly can. And then it may be thinking about fox control. Well, actually, you know, a lot of fox control takes place when the lambs are in the field. Well, is that the right thing to be doing? Um, what is the difference by understanding well, where are my territorial foxes? Or where is it just non-breeders that are moving around the place? How do I how do I target that? So I think there is a difference between occasional and targeted. Um, and the other element to that is is about um, the scale of predator control. Um, we 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 really need to be thinking about a more coordinated approach where we can to, to predator control across the area. And that's not about wiping out predators. That's about, again, targeting when and where we put the predator control in play. So I think it is that occasional sometimes 
comes across as well, you know, you're only doing it for two months of the year, so it's not of any value. Well, actually, it might be of value depending on the on the predator that that we're we're looking to be putting some measure of dampening on. So um, most uh, predator control is regulated by a system of uh, general licenses, and I understand that um, in the past year or so there have been um, a few changes in the the way that the um, the licensing for uh, spring traps and and um, for control of, of predatory bird species um, is is uh, regulated. Yeah, so if we start with the spring traps, there has been um, an international agreement on humane trapping standards. And, and what it has done, it's it set out certain standards that those traps or traps that are used, kill traps in effect, spring traps, that um, it set out certain standards that need to be met. And hence, some of the more uh, or some of the previous traps that were able to be used, such as fen traps, for example, are now no longer able to be used. Um, but there are replacement traps which have been approved, such as the dock trap and there's a new Perdix trap coming through as well. And so what the, the spring traps approval order has done is to set out what traps have been approved. And then that has then been allowed under a general license, which is um, issued by, by Nature Scott. And again, going to the Nature Scott page um, on, on uh, general licenses, or indeed just looking at for the general license on stoats, which is general license 14. They are all of the information, the, the, the do's and don'ts and what traps are approved um, are included on that. There have also been a change to a number of species that are allowed to be controlled in terms of bird species that are allowed to be controlled under general license, in particular, the removal of the general license for, for gulls. So again, um, the best best way of that is for, for folks to go and have a look at the general license page on, on the Nature Scott website. And that outlines um, where um, the changes have been and what species can and can't be used under a general license. Although the general license, um, the species have changed the general license, there is still the possibility of individual licensing um, for some of those species that are no longer covered by uh, the general license. And if people, uh, folks are, are interested or feel the need for that, then again, please get in contact with the Nature Scott licensing team and we can talk through that. My understanding for um, the issuing of individual licenses is that it requires um, quite a degree of, of evidence of, of there being a, a significant problem and also um, some kind of evidence that alternative methods of, of um, avoiding the problem have, have been considered and aren't uh, practical. Yeah, that. That's right. I mean, the, the, the difference between a general license and a specific license is the general license is that Nature Scott has assured itself about the tests that need to be met before a license can be issued. And there is enough evidence um, and knowledge to show that the, the predator species that we're interested in um, is contributing to the decline of birds of conservation interest that the population is a that the predator population is a relatively healthy population and therefore you know the the um taking the, the a number of individuals out of that species is not going to have a detrimental impact to the conservation status of the predator itself whereas if we're not sure about that that's when we have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis and there it is very much um the applicant um, working with NatureScope, but the applicant has to show the reasoning why, where is the, the knowledge, the evidence, and then there's a balance about, oh, have 
have the various tests that legislation requires Nature Scott to make, has has the applicant with knowledge um, allowed us to, to meet those tests. So subtly different, but very, very, very important difference. So far, we've been uh, speaking about uh, those predatory species that the legislation um, permits land managers to control to, to some degree. Um, what I find when I often when I, I speak to farmers and other land managers is that they're perhaps less concerned about some of those species, perhaps because um, they they know they have the, the 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 ability to go and control them if if they um, if they need to, um, and quite often I find higher levels of concern about um, the protected predators, um, things like uh, well. In the past, it was quite often buzzards that were mentioned after they, their population increased in, in the 1990s. More recently, it tends to be badgers that seem to be the uh, focus of concern. So what's the position regarding those uh, protected species? Yeah, so we're, we're always looking and learning. And, and, and again, as we all know, working in the outside, um, that you know, nature doesn't stay static. So there's always changes in populations, there's therefore always changes in impacts. And what's important for us using um, a thing called the Wildlife Management Shared Approach, which is a, a way of trying to work through some of those issues, is that we are as open as we can be about understanding um, the, the different dynamics, if you like, you know, the different interactions that are going on there, and, and trying to bring in not just um, pure science, but also bring in some of that local knowledge and, and blend that together so that we're getting a, a better idea of the of the total body of knowledge of what's actually happening out there. Now that all sounds rather highfalutin, but what, what it actually means in practice is that we are asking people, we are we've we've heard some of the concerns about badgers. And what we're now doing is is going out to various different groups, um NFUS, Scottish Badgers, and asking them, right, well, well what what are your members saying? How how are they seeing the changes in terms of badger populations? Then trying to take a closer look at, well, can we get a better understanding of, A, have we seen uh, an increase in, in badger populations? Is that a dramatic increase? Is it across Scotland? Is it in key areas? And then a better understanding of, well, well what really is happening here in terms of, is there that impact in terms of, of badger predation, particularly on, on ground nesting birds? And and then, well, well, what is what are the solutions to that? How do we how do we work through trying to minimise that if those impacts are uh, occurring? So we're beginning that process. We started that we started that last year, looking at a reviewing of all of the evidence that that has been published up to this point. But now, what we're doing is now bringing in some of that that practical knowledge to help us try to better understand exactly what's going on. And that's the way that we. We're, we're evolving our thinking about, well, how do we get a better understanding of, of, of predation? Um, sort of that it, it's not so simple to get that direct cause and effect. And because of that, there are probably a number of things that can be done to mitigate against the impacts that, that predators are having. Well, it will certainly be interesting to see how the shared approach to wildlife management develops in the future. So far in this podcast, um, we've been speaking very much about uh, traditional um, predator control, um, but it's worth noting that um, some people are, are taking alternative ways of, of looking at um, 
predator and prey interactions. And in particular, um, there's quite an interesting bit of work going on in the um, Cairngorms Connect area, um, the predator project there. To learn more, I spoke on the phone to Kenny Cortland, wildlife ecologist with Forestry and Land Scotland and manager of the Cairngorms Connect Predator Project. Thanks for joining us, Kenny. Can you tell us a little bit more about the project? Well, firstly, Forestry and Land Scotland are one of the partners in the Cairngorms Connect initiative, along with um, Nature Scotland, RSPB and Wildland Limited, and there's a nice website that explains it all. I started the Cambridge Connect project in 2017, so I kind of coordinate it and initiate the work and work in partnership primarily so far with Aberdeen University and we've had a series of students helping us with the work. Okay, and what are the overall aims of the project? Well, the overall aims are to understand the predator community i guess we want to monitor the predator community and the prey population we um, want to find out how the predators and prey coexist uh, and we want to find out how the predator species interact do predators eat other predators what are the implications of this sort of behavior for precious prey species like capercaillie and we want to generate interest in predators and their behaviour in the, in the public, I guess. And this was all initiated because in the Cairngorms Connect area, the kind of predator community is reassembling. We've got all these interesting predators returning, and a lot of people predicted that the return of these predators would be would cause the demise of some of the prey species. But in fact, so far, that doesn't seem to be the case. You mentioned some predators potentially um, eating other predators, um, uh, something known as intra-guild predation, um, and something that seems to be of increasing interest among ecologists and conservation practitioners. Can you tell us a little bit more about the theory behind that? Sure. Uh, intra-guild predation is simply the killing and sometimes eating of a predator by another predator. These are predators that compete for a prey resource. And this is a really interesting phenomenon, the interaction among predators, because it can have all sorts of profound effects on the structure of ecological communities. And in fact, research is starting to show that it was probably thought this top-down forcing, as it's called, or trophic cascades, there's all sorts of jargon, is really quite important in terms of its impacts on biodiversity. So the theory is that the increasing numbers of some larger predators may, rather than being detrimental to, to some prey species, may actually be beneficial um, due to the fact that those those um, predators are actually reducing the numbers of uh, smaller but more efficient predators. That's right. Apex predators, if you like, in our case, it may be golden eagles might have an impact on the population of what are called measle predators, middle predators, smaller ones like uh, martens or foxes conceivably, um, but not only in terms of uh, affecting the numbers of these middle predators, but also affecting their behaviour. So if there are bigger predators around, these middle, smaller predators might not hunt in certain areas or they might uh, avoid certain areas entirely. Uh, they may behave differently, they may stay in places with plenty of cover, etc. So it's quite a complicated interaction that can occur between 
predators at different various, different levels of the predator guild. So, which are the predator species that you're particularly looking at in your project area? Well, we've got you know eleven breeding species of raptors, including white-tailed eagle and golden eagle. Uh, goshawk has recently colonised the area and is now breeding. The main mammalian predators are foxes and martins. Those are the ones we're particularly interested in because the existing evidence suggests they've got the potential to have quite strong effects on woodland grouse, for example. Got an apparently expanding badger population. Got weasels, stoats, otters, mink sometimes. So it's a surprisingly diverse community of predators. And have you found any evidence so far of any interactions between the various predators, the, the sort of intra-guild effects, or um, is it too early in the project yet to have picked those sorts of things up? Yeah, we've got we've got really quite solid evidence of intra-guild predation happening. Uh, so the first thing was we're fine when goshawks recolonised the area. Everybody thought they're going to eat all the woodland grouse, and that'll be the end of Capricorn black grouse in the area. But uh, and that's not an unreasonable uh, guess because they do focus on woodland grouse in Scandinavia. But in fact, we've looked at the diet goshawks, and they're eating hardly any woodland grouse. Uh, a few black grouse, uh, no evidence of them eating Capricorn, and they're eating lots of jays and hoodie crows. Uh, which are renowned predators of woodland grouse nests. So that's really interesting. We found uh, foxes and golden eagle nests. More quantitatively, Christian Navarro is a PhD student of mine, and he's been using genetic techniques looking and has looked at over 1,500 samples of red fox and pine marten scats. And using metabarcoding, you can tell what these animals have been eating. And um, so far, uh, we've found evidence of um, jay, weasel, pine marten, and even badger in the diet of foxes, for example. Um, so there's clearly a lot of interactions happening among the predators in the Cairngorms Connect area. I suppose we now have a, a fairly sort of complete um, assemblage of predatory bird species from eagles down to um, uh, crows and, and other um, smaller predatory birds. Um, but I suppose when it comes to the, the mammalian predators, um, we're um, missing the, the top predators. Um, we're used to hearing people talking about um, potential for wolf and lynx reintroduction. Um, putting that particular debate to, to one side, um, for the time being, um, presumably in the context of your studies, the, the absence of those sorts of species must have an impact on how these intra-guild um, relationships amongst, um, uh, particularly amongst the, the mammal predators, the foxes, badgers, and, and pine martens, and so on, um, works. Well, the absence of these apex predators like lynx and wolves means that our system is not as complex as other systems, um, and there will be consequences in that. So in the absence of these big predators, mammalian predators, I guess uh, foxes and martens are likely to be more abundant, and they act currently as our apex predators. But they are species that are 
quite well adapted, it seems, to you know, man-made landscapes. So that's why we're keen to look at uh, their diet and behaviour in quite a lot of detail. Another thing I understand you're looking at is the effects of the practice when culling deer of leaving the gralach, the internal organs on the hill. That obviously provides a potential food source for predators. Could that boost the populations of predators, leading to spillover predation, or could it divert predators from more sensitive prey species? Yeah, we've started looking at um, the impacts of deer culling on the predator community, and what we've concluded thus far is that on some parts of Cairngorms Connect, lots of gralichs are left from deer culling, and sometimes badly shot deer are left on the hill. And this is... Um, it's left in a consistent way spatially and in time such that we were pretty sure that it probably supports more predators in the area than would occur naturally and that's clearly going to have knock-on effects for prey species. So we're in the process of devising a study whereby we'll, we'll manipulate the availability of gralics, for example we'll remove them from certain areas but we're also going to try providing diversionary food at key times in the ground nesting bird season. And there's some good evidence from work done by Per Vege in Norway that shows the provision of diversionary food dumps reduces uh, predation on Capercaillian black grouse nests and broods and productivity increases. So we're going to give that a try. But we think there's no doubt that deer gralichs subsidise the predator community. It'll be interesting to see if the Cairngorms Connect Predator Project can find ways to minimise predation impacts on species of conservation interest within the landscape scale forest and upland habitats that they're managing. However, in the short term, I suspect that more traditional methods of predator control are likely to remain necessary alongside habitat management and creation if we want to maintain species like wading birds in our more heavily modified farmland environment. Thanks to Kenny and Alistair for speaking to us in this podcast. If you'd like to find out more, please visit the Farm Advisory Service website, where there is a wide range of information on farmland biodiversity conservation.